Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. I'm Tyler Tischler, Associate Editor for Reader Views in Marquette, Michigan. And I'm Victor Volkman from Loving Healing Press in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's November 29th, 2007, and welcome to episode number 52 in our series. Tonight's topic is Writing and Publishing Poetry, and our special guest who will be joining us this hour is Beverly Mathern. You can learn more about our guest on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. Please send us your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. Now, tonight we're on the line with poet and author Beverly Mathern. She is a professor in the Department of English at Northern Michigan University and a former director of its Master of Fine Arts program in Creative Writing. She has published two chapbooks and two full-length books of poetry in facing pages of French and English, including The Blues Crying, a collection of blues poetry. The work is available in both book and CD format. This collection of blues poetry received a full-page feature article in the international edition of the French newspaper, Le Figaro. Beverly's poetry is also the subject of a dissertation on bilingual writers, including Samuel Beckett by a student at the Sorbonne in Paris. While on sabbatical last year, she completed a third full-length book, a bilingual collection of linked prose poetry about the founder of Detroit, titled La Monte Cadillac, His Early Days in France. This book, which required a residency in field research in southern France, as well as Blind River, another collection of prose poetry, are forthcoming in 2008. Beverly's work is widely received. She has been published in many English-language publications, including Great River Review, Runes, and Verse. French publications include several, which I cannot pronounce. (laughs) Her poetry appears in many anthologies, including, most recently, French Connections, a gathering of Franco-American poets published by Louisiana Literature Press. She has a short story in Resurrecting Grace, Remembering Catholic Childhoods from Beacon Press in Boston. Good evening, Beverly. Good evening. Hello, Beverly. I'm glad to have you here. Beverly and I have a relationship that goes back about maybe 15 years or so. We both um, have taught at Northern, and I've watched her poetry career bloom, so we thought she'd be a great guest tonight. So, Beverly, well, thank you, I Tyler. To, no, you're welcome. Um, I wanted to start out by just asking you to give us a little bit of a definition of what poetry actually is and where it comes from in terms of inspiration. Well, of course, there are many definitions of poetry out there, but I think everybody will agree that poetry is a heightened and rarefied thing. And that's what distinguishes it from prose. If you take, for example, the poet Richard Wilbur, um, for him, I mean, he's the person who said that poetry is a heightened and rarefied thing. And I wanted to give you just six lines from his poem called The Wild Geese to give you an idea of the incredible momentum and the drive that he can achieve in just six lines. Ice, ice, forlorn, where no grass grows nor corn, nor men dead nor men born, down where the shark mouth steals, by black ice holes for seals, the flight hurls, the flock wheels. (laughs) Absolutely tremendous. So that's one side of the spectrum. And then the other side is a poet like the Kansas poet William Stafford. He says, 
that poetry is talking in our not-quite-prose way, and that poetry is conversation with a little bit of luck. And he says, similes and metaphors are just for emergencies. And I've got one very small, very spare, six-line poem of his to show you how he, too, achieves through a really spare and compressed language what we call poetry. Inside a house I live, inside a room that knowing makes, then far inside something greater no one can find or say. And you live beside me, millions of stars away. So those are, you know, a couple of poets who can be placed on, you know, the too far ends of the spectrum. Some of the other wonderful definitions of poetry that have come down to us include Samuel Taylor Coleridge's The Best Words in the Best Order. Emily Dickinson said, if I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that it is poetry. And W.H. Auden said that poetry is the clear expression of mixed feelings. And Elizabeth Bishop said, poetry is hundreds of things coming together at the right moment. Poetry is life distilled, Gwendolyn Brooks said. And Robert Bly said, poetry is something that penetrates for an instant into the unconscious. Wow. Are you there? That's a, yeah, that's a great collection of, of quotes about poetry. <laughs> yeah. In and, terms uh, of where poetry comes from, um, I don't think anybody really knows where poetry comes from, but the process seems to be a mysterious collaboration between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. The conscious mind being the life you know you're leading, and the unconscious mind being the life you don't know you're leading, but that is nonetheless present and affecting the deep currents of who you are. So, you know, in a way, poems are a gift from somewhere that knows more than we do, and they seem to have a will of their own. When they come to us, it's as if they're on an independent journey and and they just pass through us. It's, It's almost as though we have very little say about it. You know, we are visited in this magical way and then we put our pen to paper. Yeah, it's, it sounds almost like a um, like a channeling experience. <laughs> you know, some higher some higher force just speaks through you for a moment. Um, would you give us, a, you were going to read us one of your poems, Beverly, and could you tell us a little sure. bit about where the idea for that poem came from? Well, it's a poem about the night my father died, and I couldn't touch the material for 15 years because it was too painful. But then it just came to me, and then this one image kept asserting itself. It was the image of my father's hospital bed levitating and floating out of the window of the hospital. And while I was writing that poem, I kept saying to myself, would you please get out of my way? I don't really like you. (laughs) But eventually the image won, and so here's what I came up with paper boat, as though we rehearsed it, our hands on the hairline of your forehead, the tips of your shoulders, your shins, ankles, the tops of your feet. With one ceremonial push, we launched you out the window, through the fog in the swamp, under the hidden moon. We urged you on, 
did not oppose the drift as your breath became labored fewer than stopped. We let go of you. The way a small boy floats a paper boat in his backyard coulee, the space between the boat and him widening. That, that's really interesting, especially that it's, it sounds like the poem tells a story and, um, or, uh, you know, it, it, it's a development in yourself. Mm-hmm. Of, of the experience and the image that you're using. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, I've, I've often heard people say poets are born and they, they aren't made, but I know you've taught poetry for a long time. and So I'm wondering how, how do you effectively teach someone how to write poetry and what sorts of, even for yourself as a poet, how have you taught yourself to become a better poet? Well, I think the best way to become a poet and, you know, to teach others to be a poet is to read poets. And in my poetry workshops, I try to provide a safe place where students can share what would normally be very, very intimate material and I'm very encouraging. Uh, sometimes people are very modest and they're poets and they don't know it. And my duty as a teacher is to is to lead them the way to their own identity as a poet. Well, Beverly, that sounds like exactly the right thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about breaking into the poetry market. Is there a way, like I know if if I was going to be a science fiction writer, I would first submit things to to monthly magazines, maybe start uh, short stories and so on. How would I approach the market as, as a new poet? Well, you'd want to choose where to submit. And there are some wonderful resources out there that help us to do that. And these publications include, for example, The Writer and Writer's Digest. They print a list of poetry markets in their magazines. Every year in The Writer's Digest, for example, um, they will list the top, what they think are the top 50 poetry markets. And, of course, at the very top are the New Yorker, Poetry, the Paris Review, you know, and then after that comes the second tier, which is a very high tier as well, which would include, say, the Georgia Review, the Southern Review, the American Poetry Review, Plow Shares, the Iowa Review, Prairie Schooner, Verse, the Gettysburg Review, Runes, a Review of Poetry, and so on. And so what, you know, what you do is you, you write, you make a list for yourself. And this doesn't happen overnight. It's something you do over time. But what you've got to do is get your hands on the actual magazines and journals and reviews, and you've got to read the poetry. And you say to yourself, well, this poetry speaks to me. And then you and the editor presumably are on the same wavelength. So you send your poems to that magazine. But if you read a magazine whose poems say absolutely nothing to you, then you don't want to waste your time. You know, and there are some other wonderful resources to help you start your list. Another is Poets Market. It comes out every year and it lists about two thousand periodicals and presses that will publish your poems. They'll tell you, in each entry, they'll tell you what kind of poetry uh, each wants, what they'll pay for it, if anything, because normally what you get paid is one or two free copies of the issue. 
in which your poem appears. Then, in terms of publishing a full-length book of poetry as opposed to just one or two or three to five in a, in a poetry review, a good resource is the International Directory of Little Magazines and Small Presses. It lists more than 4,000 markets for writers, you know, uh, of all kinds, really, uh, poetry, fiction, children's uh, literature, and so on. Then, of course, there's, there are the two poets and writers and the writer's chronicle. They print announcements in the back of their issues uh, where editors have calls for anthologies or calls for the, you know, their next issue uh, of, a, of a review. And those are really, really helpful. Great. That's a great list of, of resources to start with. Um, I'm just thinking that, you know, given that a poem can be anywhere between six or 600 lines, how do you uh, sort of discipline yourself to uh, approach a form that's, that's really uh, amenable to being printed in a journal? Well, you know, if you're writing your own book, and if you're lucky to have an editor or a, a, a publisher already, you can almost do what you want. But if you're starting out, it's true that most magazine editors prefer shorter poems, you know, anywhere from a half page to a page, possibly two pages. It's because they can get more poets in the same issue if they're shorter. Right. And, you know, I think poetry already is a very spare form and that you've got to be very disciplined with language to begin with. Yeah, you've got a point there. Uh, <laughs> definitely don't want to do the Song of Hiawatha for uh, <laughs> every single piece. <laughs> Um, in terms of, of protocol, what's the right number of poems to submit to a, a particular journal so that they get about a, three to five? Three to five? Okay. Mm -hmm. But they will tell you in their guidelines exactly what they'd like. If you send them too much, they can't get through it all. These editors are besieged by, you know, thousands and thousands of manuscripts. Yeah, that makes sense. Always follow the guidelines. <laughs> when in doubt, read the instructions. Right. All right, uh, over to you, Tyler. Well, Beverly, I don't think Victor really, um, he mentioned some of your works, but he didn't mention that your roots are really, uh, you're from Louisiana, and I know you have a Cajun background, really, and so you've mm -hmm. written lots of bilingual um, works in French and in English. I, I know some of your books, you will write a poem in, um, in English and translate it into French or maybe you know, vice versa, and you've also translated the poetry of Stanley Kunitz. And uh, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what your challenges are in writing bilingual poetry, and what do you think are the, the advantages or disadvantages in writing in either English or in French? And I'm, I'm just kind of really interested about how, you know, having this two-language possibility uh, uh, affects the word choice that you use in writing your poems. Well, you know, one of the obvious advantages is that you can publish more poems because you can send them not just across the United States, but France and Canada and Belgium and you know, wherever French is spoken. Um, but it's true that in this going back and forth process of translating from one language into the other, you find yourself actually being much more discriminating in terms of word choice and in terms of economy. But sometimes you can be very frustrated because I remember when I wrote 
something like 16 prose poems on Cadillac in 2001 when Detroit was celebrating the tricentennial of its founding. I wrote them all. I was in France. I wrote them in French. Then I came back to the U.S., and I was informed <laughs> that the folks in Canada decided they wanted to publish the book bilingually with the hopes that they would sell it not just in Canada but in Detroit primarily as well. And so I, it was very difficult to put them into English. And to be honest with you, a lot of the rich, very specific uh, local color there in that part of France along the Garonne River got lost in the translation. And that, you know, that's one of the problems you run into. And we'll be back with more Authors Access after these important announcements. Are you an author looking for another way to make your book available to your reading audience? If so, how about entering the revolutionary world of ebooks for Amazon Kindle? Amazon recently launched their new ebook reader that is now sweeping the masses by providing not only the ebook reader limitless possibilities, but it also now provides the opportunity for all authors to have their book available in the ebook format. The Kindle is the newest book reading device to hit the market. The Kindle's 6-inch screen is comparable to the dimensions of a paperback and uses breakthrough technology to produce the clarity and readability of a printed book. The Kindle gets as many as 30 hours of reading on a single charge and has the unique ability for the reader to change font size, which is a plus for the mature reading audience that prefers large type text. The Kindle can hold 200 books, hundreds more on a memory card, and has a limitless amount through Amazon. One of the most notable features of the Kindle is that it offers wireless connectivity and works independent from a computer. Let Reader Views help you get your book on Amazon in just a few easy steps. You provide us the information and we'll upload it for you. At the same time, we will optimize your ebook by ensuring that your book is compatible and looks great on the new Kindle Reader. For more information, please go to ReaderViews.com and click on the Services for Authors in the top menu bar. There you will see the services we provide, as well as the link for your Kindle eBook production. The success of your book is our greatest interest. Go to ReaderViews.com today. Could you tell us a little bit more about the book that you've been writing about um, Cadillac? You're writing a, like a biography of him and mm-hmm. it all well, in poetry. Right. Actually, I've completed the book. It was a sabbatical project, and it covers the early days of Cadillac in France. And so I spent quite a bit of time living in his village and doing field research. Uh, this included I, even collecting... Uh, leaves and flowers and identifying what grows there, identifying what birds thrive there, uh, so that when I describe something, the habitat is and the, uh, the ecological system is, is all authentic. I also did an incredible amount of research in history books uh, in the city of Montauban where 
Cadillac went to school from ages 13 to about 18, I was able to get my hands on the original charter of the school that he went to, which, by the way, had been founded by Henry of Navarre in the 1500s. And, but I knew then what the curriculum was like, that they studied Aristotle in Greek and that they studied Cicero in Latin. And so I could invent, you know, a typical day at, at school. The other interesting thing is I was able to get maps of the city of Montauban as well as the city of Toulouse where he spent time uh, in law school so that I could refer to street names according to the day, you know, to the, the 1650s, it was about the 1670s that he would have been there. So because, you know, once the French Revolution takes place and then once Napoleon takes over, all the street names change. And so I wanted the authentic street names. I also got all kinds of authentic information on architectural features of cities and am able to use, you know, that very specific vocabulary. Uh, it, it was just a, an incredible experience. Uh, one of the places I visited was this marvelous uh, a monastery in the city of Moisac, which has its origins in Roman times. And it, as a matter of fact, its library houses one of the most famous collections of Roman manuscripts in the world. And I was able to do research in that library on folk tales, dancing, costume of the period. It was just uh, remarkable. I mean, I, I guessed a lot. You have, to, you have to, you know, put flesh and blood on the bones. But the bones, the historical basis for the book, is pretty authentic. Now, how did you take all of this research and... I mean, I, I can imagine myself, if I, I write novels, I can see how I would turn that into a historical novel, but what do you think was the real difference in turning it into poetry? And um, are, are you focusing, like you mentioned, the flowers and the birds, and do you use things like that as images in the poems? Or right, what, right. what is the difference between it being a novel? Well, a you know, it's a collection of prose poems, and each prose poem works... Oh, it's a little bit like montage in filmmaking. You know, the camera is in a certain setting, and then suddenly it moves to somewhere else, and then yet somewhere else. But in each of the single scenes, something is happening, and then you realize a narrative is being told. So that's what happens in these individual prose poems. They literally start when he's about th a three-month-old baby, <laughs> and then the book ends when he arrives in Nova Scotia, at Port Royal, as this dashing, brilliant soldier in Louis XIV's army. And so, but, it's, but each prose poem is a period in time, but it makes bigger leaps than a novel does. A novel is a lot more closely sequenced, whereas the parts in this book, uh, maybe I could compare it to impressionistic painting in a way. With an Compare that to, say, naturalistic painting. I would say the novel is naturalistic painting, uh, provided, of course, that it's a, 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 an historical novel or a mystery or something, you know, on the naturalistic plane, whereas this prose poem would be more like impressionistic painting because they would be strokes on a canvas that are not naturalistic necessarily. I don't know if that distinction is clear enough. But, and then with prose poems, you can be very suggestive and very poetic, 
because of the economical nature of a prose poem. Sometimes you can engage in what we call magical realism, and that's a lot of fun. One of the things I really enjoyed researching, by the way, was the folk tales of that region, so that I do have uh, Cadillac as a little boy who, on various special holidays, um, his, his father or his mother will tell one of those folk tales. And that really captures the time and the place in a very special way. And I don't think that in a novel you would do that. I'm not sure that you would tell a whole folk tale. Whereas with the prose poem, you could dedicate one whole poem to one of those tales and, and, and a context in which it's told. Yeah, I can see how that would work, especially thematically with the, mm-hmm. you know, the connections between the, the folk tale and the poem. Mm-hmm. So I'd like and, to... The way I tried to give it some some structure is I asked the question, uh, well, what was it like for Cadillac when he was a, a little boy and then what we would call a teenager and then a young man? And I've just tried to depict as best as I could what it was like. So actually some of the poems are quite naturalistic and historical, but now and then I have the opportunity, you know, to go somewhere special, somewhere more imaginative. Great. Um, Beverly, uh, let's talk for a few minutes. How did you get into uh, doing the translation of Stanley Kunitz and that whole project? Yeah, well, in 2000, my publisher, Stanley Kunitz, uh, organized this special millennial event at the at NATO. Uh, no, not NATO, at the United Nations in New York. And so Stanley Kunitz read and Gerald Stern and some other very prominent American poets, and about four of us American women poets read. And that was the first time I met Stanley Kunis. And my publisher is dedicated to publishing literature bilingually. He's published books in about 50 different languages. And he wanted to publish a French edition of Stanley Kunitz's work. You know, at the time, Stanley Kunitz was in his late 90s, and as you may or may not know, he lived to be 100. And this special portfolio edition was published in honor of his 100th birthday. And But the issue came up, like, who's going to do this French translation? And so he thought of me, and then Stanley Kunitz knew who I was because I had met him. And then they chose uh, an artist who did the lithograph, which interpreted the poem. Apparently, there were three artists who were being considered, and they chose one over the other two. And he and I worked together well, and Stanley Kunitz was fantastic to work with. He was so open, so ready to talk to me, so generous with his time. And um, he asked me, he said, or he essentially begged me, he said, Beverly, please stay close to my poems. And so I did honor him in that way because, as you may or may not know, one of the ways that many poet translators translate is that they'll take the original meaning of a poem and then they'll take it, they'll carry it over into the second language, but they'll give it a different shape or they'll go somewhere different with it or they'll give it a different tone. Sometimes they'll even do a parody of it, heaven forbid. But I stayed close to his poems and the need to do that required incredible discipline. And it was a difficult project because sometimes you have lines in poetry that are suggestive. 
and that are open to meaning, and that you can't always put your thumb on literal, the literal content of it. But when you translate, you've got to dedicate yourself to one and only one meaning. Otherwise, you can't choose the right word. We had problems, for example, with his most famous poem called The Layers, and the question was, well, how are you going to translate the title, The Layers? Because in French, there are about five or six different words for the word layer, and each is used in a very specific context. In English, you can use the, word, the one word, layers, in all of the different contexts. For example, I thought of the word couche, but you can't use that because today the word couche means baby diaper. It would have had the wrong, you know, the wrong connotation. Then there was a line in the poem that goes, live in the layers, not in the litter. And I thought, my goodness, what does that mean? I couldn't make any sense of it. I called Stanley Cunis. I said, please, you've got to help me with these two lines. I said, what do they mean? He said, Beverly, I have no idea till this day what they mean. He said, those two lines came to me in a dream. I said, well, tell me about the dream. He said, well, I had the dream 30 years ago. I can't remember a thing about it. So, but in the process of questioning him, I was able to help him to remember. And finally, he could tell me that in terms of imagery, that what he saw were the strata in rocks. And that the litter, which at first I thought was trash, you know, like crumpled McDonald's bags or something, he said, no, that they were they were broken pieces of rock. Oh. So once, you know, once I understood what imagery was in the dream, then I could, I could translate that. And my publisher told me that actually because of my close relationship with Stanley Kunitz during this project, that I set the international standard for translating that poem because also to honor Stanley Kunitz at his memorial in Provincetown at the Fine Arts Work Center, he had on display a, a, uh, a notebook in which were 50 versions of that poem, that poem published in, you know, published in 50 language, languages. Wow, that's a beautiful story. So that, that was a very interesting project. Yeah. I understand you were at the uh, Dylan Thomas Center earlier this year. How did that trip come about, and, and what kind of things did you learn from that experience? That was, uh, that was just a beautiful trip. Um, again, it was something that my publisher arranged. He, he and uh, Peter Sabat jones who was a wonderful poet in the city of Swansea, where Dylan Thomas grew up and where the center is located, uh, have organized this special exchange between American poets and Welsh poets. And so the, another poet and I went were guests in May, and we were so warmly welcomed. And before I arrived, I listened to those old, wonderful Cadman recordings of Dylan Thomas reading his poetry, and I felt like I knew him more intimately than ever. So that when we went on tour, and they took, they took us on tour for three days, looking for Fern Hill, the farm uh, where Dylan Thomas spent a lot of time as a boy. This was his aunt's farm. His poem meant a lot more to me after visiting the farm because I could see imagery from the poem everywhere I turned. But I could feel his spirit around me the whole time I was there, and it really was a beautiful experience. And now I also got to meet his daughter, I Run We Thomas. And I have invited her and Peter Thabit-Jones to come 
to my campus in Marquette, Michigan in April, this coming April, in honor of National Poetry Month. So this is a very special kind of cultural exchange that I'm very pleased to be a part of. Yeah, that sounds like a, a great experience. Uh, I, you know, been over to Wales myself, and I remember uh, the the choirs and their just their sense of beauty is really uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so, what uh, piece of advice would you like to leave for uh, an aspiring poet uh, before we close? That they should read as many poets as they can. That they should write that they shouldn't worry about how others feel about their choice to become a poet. Uh, Becoming a poet is something you must do if you're destined to be one. If you don't do it, you run the risk of getting sick and dying. I mean, I'm not even kidding. I mean, I think of the story of Irina Rotuskinskaya, the, the Russian poet, the Soviet poet, who was sent in 1980 to seven years of labor because she had she was a political dissident and and uh, the government got wind of something that she had written which criticized the system and she was not allowed to write poetry while she was in prison she was given a pad and a pencil to write to her her husband and her parents once a month but while she was there she wrote 250 poems. And how did she do it? With the burnt tip of a matchstick, she etched the poems into a bar of soap. And then she memorized the lines and then washed her hands and washed away the evidence. But this was a woman who had to write poetry. And whether you're beginning or you're very experienced, there is that kind of urgency about it. And so what you have to do is do it. Try to find a small writer's group. Find a good teacher teaching a writer's workshop and start writing. Those con- those settings will help you, will teach you what constitutes good poetry, and you can't help but develop into a poetry, into a poet if you've got the drive and the gift to be one. But some of that can be taught. I don't believe poets are just born. There are lots of folks out there who have talent but don't have discipline. If you don't have the discipline, you can't develop the talent. Wonderful words to live by. Thank you so much for spending time with us tonight, and we really appreciate you being on with us. Well, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Okay, you've been listening to another podcast edition of Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. We'll be back on the air December 5th, 2007 when our topic will be Why You Should Hire a Publicist. And our guest who will be joining us is Mary Glenn McCombs. You can learn more about all our guests on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. We would love to hear from you about tonight's show. Please send your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. Authors Access is a joint production of Reader Views Incorporated and Loving Healing Press. For Reader Views, this is Tyler Tischler in Marquette, Michigan. And for Loving Healing Press, this is Victor Wolfman in Ann Arbor, Michigan, wishing you all a good evening.